Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Let's begin in prayer, and then we'll introduce our speaker for the evening. By the way, I hope you all have your Bibles with you tonight. You better have your Bible. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal desires, entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies, O Christ God. And to you we give glory, together with your eternal Father and your all-holy, gracious, and life-giving Spirit, both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Andy, would you please introduce our speaker this evening? Of course. Our speaker this evening is Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. After a Catholic upbringing, Dr. Stephen Smith spent some years in evangelical megachurches and earned his master's at Wheaton College Graduate School in Evangelical University. Returning to the Catholic Church in 2000, Dr. Smith earned a PhD from Loyola University of Chicago, specializing in New Testament and early Christianity. Dr. Smith frequently speaks in parishes, seminaries, and universities, and has appeared on EWTN and Catholic Radio. He is the author of numerous essays and two, two books, his most recent being The House of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Temple in the Old and New Testament. Dr. Smith and his wife have two children and live in rural Maryland. We're delighted to welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Stephen Smith. Welcome, Doctor. Welcome. Thank you, Father. It's good to be back. Thank you, Andy. And hi to everybody. It's good to be with you. So, folks, tonight we've got a, uh, a wonderful task. The task is to understand more about how God speaks to us in his holy word. And I know um, that Father prayed for us, but I am going to ask the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary with me. We can never pray too much, right? So let's do that together just quickly. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. I want to give a special shout-out to those that may be part of the Institute tonight that aren't uh, currently a practicing Catholic, maybe away from the church. You may be Orthodox. You may be a Protestant or an Evangelical. Um, we're glad you're here, and we hope that you're going to enjoy tonight's conversation. Okay, um, I believe Andy was very graciously put up an outline, and if you don't have it, don't panic, you're gonna be perfectly fine, but it might be easier to um, have some of the texts in front of you. It uh, looks like this, it says inerrancy and the truth of sacred scripture, but if you don't have one, that's fine. What I wanna do is really talk about two related topics tonight. The first one is what we might call biblical inspiration, 
right? So we want to define it. We want to know what the Catholic faith says about it. We want to look at some scripture passages that will help open it up for us. Um, and we basically want to understand a distinctively Catholic approach to this. And then our second task is going to be to talk about biblical inerrancy. Uh, and in my, in my uh, teaching in seminary, this topic for 10 years, and in talking with people all over the United States and Canada about this topic, it's actually, I think, the second one that wigs people out. It gets them a little bit unnerved, um, but we're going to try to get into both of them. But we're going to start with inspiration. So if you have your outline, let's just look at page one. And uh, the first heading there is reviewing magisterial teaching. Okay, so um, we're going to review some magisterial teaching. Why? Because it's very important that we orient our minds and our hearts to what the church says. There's far too many Christians out there that are kind of what I would call freewheeling it. Um, and if you're here and you're tonight and you're not a Catholic, I know most are, but if you're here and you're not a Catholic, you need you owe it to yourself to get a copy of this little document. You can get it very easily on Amazon. It's simply called Dei Verbum. Uh, most of the folks in the audience here will be familiar with it, but here's the spelling, Dei Verbum. You can even read it online. You don't even need to buy it. You can Google it. Um, why? Because it's very salient, clear, reliable teaching on what Scripture is. Okay, So let's look at a passage in Dei Verbum, paragraph 11. Here's what it says about inspiration. Those divinely revealed realities, which are contained and presented in sacred Scripture, have been committed to writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For Holy Mother Church, relying on the belief of the apostles, holds that the books of both the Old and the New Testaments, watch this, in their entirety, with all their parts, are sacred and canonical because written, here's the word again, under the inspiration, inspirare in Latin, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they have God as their author and have been handed on as such to the church herself. So here, Dei Verbum is reminding us of one of the, the most core dogmas in our faith, aside from maybe the incarnation itself, right? And that is that God speaks to us through his word. It's not merely a human book. It is truly God's voice. When we read scripture and look at some passages in Deuteronomy in just a moment, or from St. Uh, Paul in uh, 2 Timothy, where they're talking about scripture, that is God's voice being transmitted through these holy prophets and apostles. Um, Pope Benedict wrote a beautiful exhortation called uh, Verbum Domini, which in Latin really means the word of God, right? The word of the Lord, I should say, the word of the Lord in Latin. And so it is God's holy word that transmits to us God's own voice. Let's finish the quote here. Um, in composing the sacred books, God chose men and while employed by him, made use of, watch this, their powers and abilities, so that with him acting in them and through them, that's a very key phrase, in them and through them, through the human authors, acting in them and through them, they, as true authors, right, not stenographers, not secretaries, not editors, but true authors, giving you some of the highlights here in the chat box of key words and phrases I want you to know and remember. Consigned to writing everything and only those things that he wanted uh, written. Okay, so that's from Dave Verbum 11. And then a very similar paragraph 
from the catechism, that's the next one down here, 1B. This is from the catechism and its teaching on scripture in paragraph 107. The inspired books teach the truth. Can't get more clear than that, right? The inspired books teach the truth. Since, therefore, that all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, right? So everything the human authors are saying is being said simultaneously by the Holy Spirit. We must acknowledge these books of Scripture, watch this, firmly, faithfully, and without error, firmly, faithfully, and without error, teach the truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confined to the sacred scriptures. So that's just a very, I could give you many more quotes from Providentis Musteus and many other documents, but uh, these are very, obviously, um, summarizing key documents in the Catholic Church, and they really crystallize the thought in across Catholic tradition. Dei Verbum 11 and Catechism 107. Okay, so that's just a very quick review of what our church says about it today. Now, let's, let's get a bit deeper here. Um, here's a definition I want to offer you from a very fine Catholic theologian. He actually at one point was on the Catholic uh, Pontifical Biblical Commission. Um, today, he's actually moved uh, in deeper into community and is a, is a practicing monk. But he's also a very respected theologian. His name is Dennis Farkas Falvey. You'll see his name in the and the book listed in the footnote on the page. But here's what he says, very good definition of inspiration. Biblical inspiration means the divine action stimulating the human authors of the biblical books to produce their works. It's also the divine charism bestowed upon the biblical authors, enabling them to produce those literary works which make up part of the Bible. So it's, he's trying to get us to see it as two related dimensions, right? It's the divine action, the divine initiative, right? Nothing happens here in God's word until he moves, until the divine wind blows, as I like to say. But it's also this charism, this holy and divine charism that he graces the biblical authors with so that what they give to us is fully trustworthy, true, inspired, uh, and those are the things that make up the Bible. Okay, now I want to quickly go through some scriptural examples. I always do this in my seminary class. We've looked at the um, documents of the church quickly. We've gotten a very fine, reliable definition. But let's go to the scriptures. So please open up with me to Deuteronomy. In case you don't have your outline, I'm going to give you the passage here. Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 17. Deuteronomos, the second law. I was just telling you a group of undergrads today, why is Deuteronomy in the Bible? Well, Many reasons, but one of the primary reasons is that that first generation of Israelites that was wandering in the, in the wilderness, well, guess what? They continued to wander into the wilderness, and they died out there. They even had the manna. Remember what Jesus said? They ate the manna, and they died. Um, they were a uh, tragically a faithless generation. And so now Moses has the task of summoning their children and really laying it to them, are you going to follow Christ, or are you going to follow your parents' unfortunately weak faith? Because if you follow your parents, you may well end up out here as well. So he's really asking them to choose who they're going to follow. And then he re-proclaims the law to them. That's what Deuteronomos means, the second law. Okay, just a little summary there. Now, let's look at a passage that I think will be very instructive for understanding how how inspiration works. I want to be clear before we look at this one and then the next two in the New Testament that I'm not um, these are not proof texts, 
By the way, that's why I started with our church's magisterium, the church's teaching office, so that we can kind of get the church's perspective, because we have to be prudent when we go to the scriptures, that we just don't fill in the blanks with what we are thinking or would like to pull out, okay? So a very different presentation would be, well, I'm going to prove to you inspiration or prove to you this or prove to you that by taking a scripture. And who knows what my methodology is? We've started with the church's uh, sound magisterial teaching, authoritative instruction on the scripture. So now let's get some insight from the scriptures. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And uh, let's take a look at, uh, at this in um, verse 15. And I want you to have your Bible open as we're going through these passages and mark it up, okay? This is like a golden rule, so to speak, in the Institute, as you know. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Who's me? Well, this is Moses speaking, Moshe, whose name means from the waters. He's speaking to this second generation, the youth group of, of ancient Israel out in the wilderness, right? And he's talking about how God is going to raise up the one like Moses who's going to come after him. So he's really talking about the Christ, ultimately. Um, okay, and then watch this in verse uh, 17. Uh, and the Lord said to me, they have rightly uh, said all that they have spoken. And then verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Okay, so the key verse here is verse 18. So I want you to hone in on that verse. Because I think there are three qualities or three movements of God, as I say in the outline, that help us to understand these rhythms of inspiration. So let's take it apart a little bit at a time. The verse begins this way, verse 18. I will put my words in his mouth, focusing on the phrase, my words, right? As I reminded you, Pope Benedict says, this is ultimately God speaking to us in all of the scriptures. So the scriptures truly are, first and foremost, my words, God's words. Not merely St. Paul's, not merely St. Luke, not merely Isaiah. They're God's own words. And I want to I challenge you gently tonight, but I do want to challenge you, is when you read Isaiah, does the first thing come to your mind, this is God speaking, or do you say, well, this is the prophet Isaiah? And, and I hope it would be both. But certainly I would hope the latter would be very near to you. Okay. The second thing in that verse, we're in Deuteronomy 15, sorry, we're in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18. I will put my words in his mouth. And so in talking about the qualities of a true prophet, Moses says it's God speaking. But notice that even here, it's I will put my words in his mouth. Right? The vessel for conveying God's words is the holy prophet. So God anoints and calls the prophet, but then that human prophet who's just a fallible man is entrusted with speaking for God himself. You ever ask yourself, why didn't, why doesn't God ride it through the, across the sky or use other signs? Well, sometimes he does use that. Sometimes he even uses donkey, donkeys to convey his word. But um, we have this pattern throughout salvation history of God choosing human beings. And why should we be surprised for that? God sent his own beloved son right? The divine logos to take on human flesh. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so Jesus is the living word. And we could say that in some sense, the inspired word of God is God's words incarnated, right? Through the mouthpiece, not just the mouthpiece, but through the whole prophet or apostle who's speaking them. And we're going to come back to the role of the human author. We're not yet done with that. 
Okay, so first, God speaks. It's his words. Secondly, it's the in the prophet's mouth. And then thirdly, notice what it says. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So it's a faithful word. The scriptures have a phrase for this. None of the prophet's words fell to the ground, fell on shame, right? They're all proved true. And this is the same with inspiration. It is both a positive and negative kind of doctrine. What do we mean by negative? Well, we I think we've been sketching out the positive, but it's also negative, similar to the way that infallibility, right? A pope cannot speak error. And in the same way, the divine scriptures, God preserves from error. And why does he do all of this? Because of love. He loves us. And as a loving father, he wants to nourish and guide his children. If I didn't have any rules, if I didn't have any commandments, if I didn't have any instructions for my kids, you know, if I didn't correct them when they were wrong, if I didn't stop them from touching the hot stove, would I be a good dad? I would argue that I wouldn't be. I'd be negligent. Well, thanks be to God, our loving Heavenly Father is not negligent. He gives us his word, and it is born out of love for us. Okay, let's uh, look at a couple New Testament passages, and I think these will also help us to get a little bit more clarity on inspiration from the vantage point of the New Testament. So the one I want to look at with you is a very, very familiar passage to many, uh, probably more ca uh, Protestants than Catholics, and we'll get into this. Okay, here's what it says. Uh, 2 Timothy, so if you don't have the outline, it's 2 Timothy chapter um, 3, verse 16. Uh, it's a very, very important passage for looking at the Catholic doctrine of inspiration right from Scripture. It's also one that's been very misaligned by by Protestants and, and, and others as well. But here's what St. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. And a little bit of Greek here, the word that's on your outline there is theonoustos. Can you say that with me at home? Theos neustos. And literally it means God breathed. We just can't get more simple and clear than that, right? The word of God, the scriptures are God breathed. They're infused with God's own breath, God's own life. Remember the spirit hovering over the waters? It's the same spirit that brings to us the words of God in every passage, every sentence of Holy Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And I want to land on this one more from St. Peter um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. As Al Pacino would say in Sensible Woman, I'm just getting warmed up. We've got so much more to go here. So this is just like, we're just revving up here. Okay. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, here's what St. Peter says about prophecy once again. Uh, first, all of you must understand this that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Well, by the way, that, that passage also brings shed some light on the passage that I said has been misaligned by many Protestants and evangelicals or maybe more strictly speaking fundamentalists. Second Timothy, the last one we looked at, because somehow they fill in the cracks and say, well, Scripture is... Uh, self-revelatory. We don't need anything else to know about it. Well, that's not what we believe. We believe that we need the living tradition of the church, sacred tradition, in order to illumine and guide our reading. Otherwise, we can make scripture say whatever we want. Okay, but let's leave that 
that question aside and, and get into what St. Peter is saying here. What is he saying? He's saying that Scripture is not merely a matter of private interpretation, right? Uh, because it is God who chose the men, moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from him. And the word that he uses here is very, very important. The verb that he uses is Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh, like the Pharaohs in Egypt, but Pharaoh. In 1 Peter 1, verse 20. Um, it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy ever came by the impulse of man but men moved and the word in english moved is picking up the greek verb pharaoh and it really means carried it's kind of a nautical term um in my uh, in my book um you can turn to page two in the, my, my first book the word of the lord which came out from our sunny visitor press in 2012 i can't believe it's been like five years already the word of the lord it's now it's in paperback and in that anyways in the book I, I use an example it's kind of a silly example but I'm gonna share it with you anyways okay so I used to watch this show called man versus wild with Barrett Grills you ever see this guy he's like eats all this crazy stuff I'm not even gonna go into it because he's just past dinner time but it's like a survivalist kind of show and I was watching one episode and Bear Grills or Edward Grills was the guy's name is dropped into the Antarctica and he'd actually parachute him in. So he's got the parachute. Keep that in mind. And it's freezing. The wind's blowing in his face. He's got nothing to help him except the boots and the you know backpack on his back and of course a camera crew with him. Uh, but let's not you know go there. And um, he's trying to get across this uh, this lake. It's a it's covered with ice because it's frozen. And he just keeps trying and the wind just keeps knocking him back on his butt. And so finally, he, he figures out what he can do to get across to safety, across this frozen lake. He takes the, um, the parachute and the ropes, and he kind of jerry-rigs sort of like a windsurfing thing, puts it out in front of him so that the parachute is going to get picked up by the wind current and pull him across. And sure enough, they film it, and you can see him kind of moving across, kind of bouncing up and down, you know, tenting in there, coming back down, and then pushes him again. And he's across this lake that's uh, a, a couple miles in uh, circumference, in, in no time at all. And I'm like, wow, that was pretty cool. I got to try that, except they crack my head open, right? Because I don't know what I'm doing with a parachute. But I use that in the book to talk about how that's a very good analogy to understand what St. Peter's talking about here. The term Pharaoh was used in classical Greek as a nautical term, like for a sail in a sail, sail in a ship. And so in my example, I talk about how the survivalist Bear Grylls needed to have that parachute pick up the wind or nothing was going to happen but he also needed to cooperate with it as i said if i tried to do it i'd split my head open but he was an sas trained british soldier so he knew how to you know he parachuted in many times he knew uh, the ropes and everything how to do it so it was this kind of cooperative effort between the wind and the man getting across the lake and although it's an imperfect analogy as most are i think it makes the point in an illustration that what we're talking about in inspiration is really kind of a co-penetration right that the biblical author is being illumined by god who is leading them and guiding them and preserving them from error and, and having him present the truth that god wants presented but also nothing more but that person is in communion and cooperation with the Holy Spirit through this process, okay? All right, um, let's turn to the second page now. How does inspiration actually work? This is one of the big questions I get, like what is it, like what's actually happening? Well, I want to dispel two, um, what I think are 
less helpful ways of looking at inspiration and suggest one that you should take home from this talk tonight. So let's get the, the, the bad ones out of the way first. Those are known as the dictation model and what I call the communal model or the community inspiration model and they're, they couldn't be further apart from one another. Okay, first, the dictation model of inspiration. This one basically has God doing everything and the person just writing everything down like the secretary. Now, that may be attractive to some because if we're not really, if we don't have a robust understanding of inspiration, that weaker model may actually make us feel better. We're like, well, God's got it covered. He's just going to use them. And But there's a problem with that. And the problem is that's not how it works according to Dei Verbum. It's also, um, it's it's not how God works. He doesn't uh, force himself upon others. He gently knocks on the door. He, he asks to be let in, right? So he's in relationship with these authors. And he wouldn't take someone he's in relationship with, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses or um, the, the, the evangelists and then just step on them, right? He's got too much respect for us. Um, and there's something also very beautiful and incarnational about using the human authors. Okay, so what, what happens in the dictation model? Well, it basically means that the human author is just dictating everything, okay? Uh, and there have been a couple of figures in church history um, that have promoted this approach. Today, it's very common among fundamentalists, right? And this way, the human error is completely kept out because the human doesn't do anything, right? I would also add that the um, understanding of how the Quran in Islam works in terms of it being a holy book from, uh, from Allah is much, much more in line with this dictation model, Okay, if you know the story of Muhammad, the story, the tradition is that Muhammad was in an ecstatic vision and it was the angel Gabriel, interestingly, that delivered God's words word for word verbatim from Allah in the original old Arabic. And he wrote them down as such. All one man, all one book, word for word verbatim. That's the dictation model, or at least that is how I tend to think of how the dictation model works. Okay, and you can see how that's very different from uh, from the Catholic approach that we've been talking about, which is this dynamic living, um, intense co-penetration of the divine and human in, in uh, relationship with one another. Okay. Now, on the other end of the spectrum is another problem, and that is what I call the community or communal model. It's frankly a model that's been embraced by a lot of skeptical theologians and sometimes by progressive, by progressive theologians as well. And without going into uh, too much detail, the basic idea is rather than seeing the authors, for example, of the Gospels as individual authors who are in this relationship with God, it is instead a kind of um, a task force. It's a, it's a roundtable. It's a meeting going on. So, for example, you'll hear among modern, some modern uh, scholars them talking about how we don't know who really wrote um, Mark, but we have the Markin a community, which is basically the feedback loop that's providing the words of Scripture. We don't know who Luke is or who Matthew is. These are often claimed by skeptical scholars that the Gospels were originally anonymous and that it's the communities that really are dictating the terms. Um, or others will say, well, there was an apostle or disciple of Jesus, you know, way back there, but after decades and decades and decades near the end of the first century, in maybe the 80s or the 90s, the community um, had its own concerns and interests, 
and they drove the tradition and they're ultimately what is responsible for what's in the text. Well, that's just not how we understand inspiration from a Catholic perspective, right? Because what happens now is first thing they've done is they've cut the legs out from under uh, eyewitness testimony. It's no longer uh, Matthew, one of the 12, right, who is responsible for that book, but really only his community. Um, I have to just pause here and say this whole business about the Gospels being anonymous is really just a load of bunk, but it's very, very popular out there. Bart Ehrman, if you know who he is, is one of the most popularizers of this idea. And um, we can maybe talk about this in the Q&A, but the Gospels were never anonymous. I, I get sick and tired of hearing skeptics saying that the Gospels were originally anonymous and the titles were added in the second or third century. Well, I want to say prove that to me. Show me where there is a manuscript of the New Testament Gospel of, for example, Matthew at the first folio or the first page where it would have, you know, the Gospel according to Matthew. Show me one of those Gospels where it's not there. And they'll say, well, that's impossible to do because we don't have any first century manuscripts of the New Testament. Our, our copies are all from the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century. And we have thousands of them, so we're fine, but we don't have those original ones. Um, and so it was in the original state. So we have to take their word for it that they were originally anonymous. But all the evidence leans in the other direction, right? First of all, the formula in all four Gospels is identical, with the exception of the names. It's in all the Gospels that we have. It's the Gospel according to John, the Gospel according to Matthew. So what I want to know is, if it was just arbitrary that these apostles' names were added later, why is it that we don't have some copies of Matthew that say the gospel according to John or the gospel according to Philip? We don't have that, right? They all say the gospel according to Matthew. Same thing with Luke, same thing with Mark, with all four gospels. So there's no evidence. It's just one of these red herrings that, uh, you know what I just, I, I really think some of the skeptics, they just truly don't want to believe that they were written by eyewitnesses. It's like they're going against the grain of the evidence. But unfortunately, there have been generations and generations of college students who've taken courses in historical critical uh, gospel studies and have just heard the professor say, hey, the gospels were anonymous and only later the names were added and they've just bought it, except there's no evidence to support that whatsoever and a mountain of evidence and logic that supports that the gospels were always from the beginning eyewitness gospels. And so this communal model makes me very nervous. So I'm not saying that there's no redaction at all to the gospels. There may be, but I think in a modest sense. Uh, but that would still be under the rubric of the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that in some of the questions in just a moment under point number five. But let's move on. So what is the model then that the church is, um, that we understand Catholic uh, inspiration? Uh, how would we do that? We would sometimes call the plenary model. Uh, but I would also quickly say that the church is, in the is not in the business of propping up models, right? That the church just teaches what the church teaches. But the plenary model is the one I've been talking about all along now, which is that co-penetration of the divine ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, with the true authors uh, working in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's called the plenary model. It's the balanced model. It's the, it's the model of inspiration, of inspiration that we really embrace as Catholics. Okay, here are some common questions just quickly. I can't do all of them, but some of the questions that people ask from time to time about inspiration. Uh, point number four. Um, a, what biblical books are inspired? Well, all the books of the Old and New Testament, so for Catholics, we believe in a canon of 73 books, not, not the smaller Protestant canon, okay? We believe in the inspiration of all 73 books. That includes the seven deuterocanonical books of Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and so on, right? And then, of course, all 27 books 
of the New Testament. So 46 books of the Old, not 39, according to Protestants, and then the 27 books of the New. Uh, at what point did they become inspired? That's another pretty good question. We consider them inspired at the canonical stage. That is to say, when they were um, written by the apostles, right? And then those are taken up into the canon of Scripture. So it is. this is an important point. It is the autographs of the uh, Gospels, for instance, that were inspired. So the original compositions, pen to paper, as it were, papyrus, right, by the apostles. Um, it's not the later copies. So one of the reasons we, one of the ways we can understand some of the um, so-called errors, I wouldn't really call them errors, I would just say manuscript difficulties, are from later generations. Okay, now I want to quickly come back and say that the manuscript tradition of the New Testament is impeccable. We have almost 6,000 uh, copies of the New Testament from small fragments all the way up to full codices of the entire document from the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth century, and so on. We can actually put the New Testament together from just the quotes in the Church Fathers. Forget about Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus and this papyrus. Just from quotations in the Church Fathers, you can get from Matthew 1 to Revelation 22. So 5,000, 6,000 copies does not even include quotes, you know, in homilies and stuff from the Church Fathers. So we have an impeccable manuscript tradition. Having said that, is sometimes there are errors that do crop up in all of those copies because that's not under the rubric of inspiration. Um, so sometimes people would miss a line, or sometimes instead of a the, they would leave the definite article out, or things like that. Are some texts more inspired than others? No. Right? So the book of Obadiah is just as inspired as the Gospel of John. Right? Um, which translations are inspired? This is another false start, start question, like in football, it's a false start. Right? Um, we wouldn't say that translations are inspired because that's, that's a different matter. We might say... A better question is, Dr. Smith, what's a good translation to read? Or what's a reliable translation? Okay, And for that, we can say, uh, certainly get a Catholic Bible. I like to use the RSV, Revised Standard Version, but the New American Bible. I know folks, though, that news, new, use the New Jerusalem Bible. But for study, we want one that's very close to the original words and thoughts of the writers. And that would be, I think, the RSV or NAB would be the ones I would recommend. So this is where I want to turn as I said, two major topics tonight, inspiration and inerrancy. I want to turn now to this corollary, which is inerrancy. So on point number five is where we begin to pick this up. First of all, let me give you a definition, if I can, of inerrancy. Inerrancy means that the books of Holy Scripture are totally free from error. The books of Scripture are totally free from error in all of their assertions. Now, why do I add in all of their assertions? That's not to allow in a back door that there's error or, or anything like that. It's simply to say that, like, let's take the uh, concept of polygamy. I was just reading a passage where, you know, Jacob had two wives. That really wouldn't be a question of error. It would really be more a question of interpretation or studying the, uh, the, the period of the patriots. But anyways, what's important is that what Scripture asserts. So sometimes Scripture will record a lie. Does that mean Scripture is affirming it's okay to lie? No. Uh, there's a difference between that which Scripture records, like polygamy or lying or sin, and that which it asserts. So that definition comes from another Catholic biblical scholar that wants us to just see that we, we, can't, we have to be critical about what we're reading and what Scripture is saying. Just because something is in Scripture doesn't mean that it's affirming it, okay? Uh, we have to know what's the intent of the Scripture passage. Okay, um, so that's a basic definition. Also, they're a package deal. 
Um, it makes me very uncomfortable when someone says, oh, yeah, I believe in the inspiration of Scripture. But, you know, of course, there's errors in there. And I want to say, first of all, what errors? And then on what basis are you saying that? That's not Catholic doctrine. Catholic doctrine is that the scriptures are inspired and inerrant, meaning without error. And the biblical um, backup for this is very simple. It's Numbers 23, 19. You can look it up later. The gist of it is God doesn't lie. How about that, right? So what we're simply asserting is that because God speaks to us and he doesn't lie, he does not mislead his children. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, he tells us how to get to heaven, and he, he, there's no errors that way, but surely, you know, like there's contradictions in the resurrection narratives about which women and stuff like that. And I'm going to take a pretty hard line here, maybe surprise some of you and say, nope, I'm following what Dei Verbum and the Catholic tradition says, that there is no error in Scripture. Now, notice I didn't say there's no apparent contradictions, there's no dark passages, there's no difficulties, there's no things that make you scratch your head and go, hmm, there's plenty of those. But I'm not willing, nor is the church willing or able to define those as errors. So let me describe, and maybe I can get at least this part in before the break, four ways of looking at inerrancy. Inerrancy is basically the corollary to inspiration that there, the teaching by the Catholic Church that there's no error in Scripture. Okay, well, the first approach um, is what I would call the secular human, humanist approach to inerrancy. Well, that one won't get us anywhere, right? We can't even deal with that one because that one says, of course it's not uh, inerrant because it's neither is it inspired. It's just a historical book of the, of the past. So the secular humanist approach, uh, the atheistic approach, the agnostic approach, Bart Ehrman, so you even find this among some uh, Protestants and even Catholic scholars, surprise, surprise, from time to time, are actually purporting an approach that is really heretical. <laughs> Sorry. Another error, though, in uh, inerrancy is what I would call the fundamentalist approach. And essentially, the fundamentalist approach to Scripture in inerrancy is that it affirms inspiration in inerrancy, but in a hyper-literalistic fashion, right? And so what that means is that serious discrepancies are simply ignored, much like the Wizard of Oz when Toto pulls the curtain down. But pay no attention to that one over there, right? We don't care about that one. God said it. Don't you believe it? That's usually what they do, too. Hey, don't you believe God's word? And then, and then all of a sudden you're defending your faith in God and Jesus and the Bible because you're not following their literalistic interpretation. Uh, proof texts are used or it's just pounded into oblivion. Proponents of the fundamentalist uh, approach to inerrancy, stand on faith alone, faith over reason, faith over science, or this one, how about faith instead of science, right? Insisting, for example, that the world is 6,000 years old because they don't have a better uh, approach to thinking about what God may be teaching us through the books of Genesis that the world wasn't necessarily made 6,000 years ago, okay? So um, both of these approaches don't really help us a lot. Now, when we come closer to the Catholic view on, ins on inerrancy, there is still some tidying up that has to be done after Vatican II, unfortunately. Maybe there always will be. Because there are two approaches, and I have these on your outline. One is called the restricted approach to inerrancy, and the other then is called the unrestricted or unlimited. So restricted and, or limited and unrestricted and unlimited. What's the difference between these two? Well, essentially, the restricted view of inerrancy is kind of like, okay, God's word is inspired, and it's inerrant, you know, basically. 
But then through the back door, they would let in all sorts of historical conundrums and anomalies and things like that. So the restricted view often limits it to what's called faith and morals. Um, this is a common play that people do taking the words of Dei Verbum or faith and morals, right? Maybe you've heard this. Well, simply not what the Catholic Church teaches. It's not what Pope Leo taught in the first scripture document, Providentissimus Deus. It's not what Dei Verbum teaches. It's just not what the church teaches. But that you can find any number of Catholic biblical scholars that will say, well, the God's word is inspired and inerrant, but, you know, in terms of getting to heaven and faith and morals. A couple problems with this. First of all, who's to say what is faith and morals? Like, what does that mean when you say, well, faith and morals? Well, usually what they're thinking of historical pieces, but let's just set that aside. There's a couple problems with this. First of all, again, you won't find it in any of the scripture documents. And we go back here all the way to 1893, which was the first Catholic scripture document from Pope Leo, all the way up to the present day. None of them have this teaching of simply limiting scripture to faith and morals. My view of these Catholics is that they are embarrassed by what appear to be errors, they don't know how to handle them. They want to hold on to something of inspiration and something of inerrancy, but they're uncomfortable. They don't want to look stupid at a cocktail party. So they're like, well, you know, it's kind of like saying abortion is wrong for me. You know, like you're around that moral relativist. It's like abortion's wrong for me and contraception's wrong for me. Well, when you say for me, what you're really saying is there's no right and wrong at all. And when you say, you know, some things in scripture are may have errors and other things don't. The first question is, well, how do we adjudicate what's faith and morals? And secondly, and are you the one to do that for us, Mr. Theologian? And then secondly, it's just not in the Catholic documents. And it's illogical, right? Think about it. If God's word is ultimately not just these humans' words, but God speaking through the human author in a kind of um, symbiotic way, then how is it that he can be allowing lies into scripture? Now, I want to just press this point a little bit more because I think sometimes when I say this, People are with me like, yay, I'm with you in inspiration, yay, in, in inerrancy. But because there's been so much confusion about inerrancy, it feels safer to take the restricted inerrancy approach. Like, hey, I'm not a Catholic fundamentalist, and you know, let's just kind of keep it kind of moderate here. Um, but in fact, what you're doing when you say restricted inerrancy is actually undercutting inspiration. I can give you quotes from the, uh, from the popes, no less, that say that you just can't, it's a package deal. Now, the good news is that this is not actually a tough pill to swallow. It just sounds like it is at first, because we know of all these kind of difficult uh, particulars in the scriptures. The thing is, we need to understand and study what we're talking about when we're looking at a particular difficult passage. And either before or after the break, I'll walk you through some of these classic red herrings, like the mustard seed, right? People always raise that one and say, well, that's a really obvious one. I mean, the mustard seed's small, but botanists have shown there's smaller seeds. Okay, so I'm going to skip a little bit on the outline because there's a lot here. So let's turn to, um, on the outline, let's see, it's the, the next page where it says part two, the mustard seed. Um, the passage is in Mark 4. 30 to 32, and let me just read it for us, but open up your Bibles if you would to Mark 4, and it says this, Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? Notice what parable, he's giving us a clue into the genre that he's going to be communicating, it's a parable, right? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of seeds upon the earth. However, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all the shrubs and 
puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Okay, now here's the objection. Okay, comes from none other than one of the leading biblical skeptics today, Bart Ehrman. He contends that modern botany has demonstrated that the Gospel of Mark is incorrect in this point and that there are numerous seeds, the word is spermaton, in the Greek, smaller than the mustard seed. In fact, he talks about how there is an Israeli orchid, which is about half the size, it's microscopic almost, of the mustard seed, and, and it grows, they both grow in Israel. So why would Jesus not use that one for teaching purposes? Okay, here would be my response. Now, the weak-willed Catholic is going to go, oh, yeah, you know, it's just a mistake, but that's okay because Jesus is awesome and the kingdom of God grows and that's the main thing. And so it's a little error, no big deal. No, I'm not going to give that away. First, Jesus uses the comparative, not the superlative form of the adjective. I actually have the Greek for you here if, you're, if you know a little Greek, but if not, the word is mikroterion, and it's the comparative form. What does that mean? Well, that simply means that it conveys one of two ideas, either A, a contrast, a simple contrast, or duality, right? Nothing more, nothing less. And I would suggest that that's what he intends for us to see, a simple contrast. Okay. Secondly, there's another key phrase in the Greek here. The final phrase of Jesus is very, very key. What is meant by the phrase tone epites gase, on the earth, right? Small seed on the face of the earth. Well, Bart Ehrman is far too elastic in ascribing a technical meaning of the entire planet. But this parable, like all of Jesus' parables, is Semitic. It's Judean, right? It's Galilean. It's drawn from local customs, local agrarian customs. And so it's reasonable to suggest that this phrase is not said in global or galaxian terms, but simply in the regional landscape, on the earth meaning out here, right? It's like when I say, oh, the police showed up. Did the entire Baltimore Police Department come? No, there was eight cop cars there. The police came. Um, but what of the orchid? Let's come back to that. Sure, the orchid seed is smaller, but it also does not grow into a large seed as the mustard seed. So what I would say is my summary here. The skeptic is very deficient. He basically says, technically, there are seeds that are much smaller. And in fact, Bart Ehrman actually lost his faith over this. He was a fundamentalist Christian in his teens. He's now teaching at um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina University. He went to Princeton. Um, I don't know if that's where things went wrong. Because <laughs> he also went to my alma mater, which is Wheaton College, which is a great evangelical school. But anyways, I digress about Mr. Ehrman. But as I say, the problem is that Jesus is teaching didactically here. Remember elsewhere Jesus says, in Luke's gospel, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot come after me and be my disciple. So here's my question. Is Jesus actually intending his disciples violate the fourth commandment and dishonor their father and mother? Or is he using hyperbole? In a similar manner, in this teaching, Jesus is using, in this parable, he's using uh, didactic examples. He's using teaching examples. So Jesus nor Mark should be charged with some sort of botanical mistake here. This is in the science book. And so the example that Jesus uses is a very effective parable. I will grant you that if Jesus is talking scientifically or botanically, he's a lousy botanist, but he's a killer parable teller, and that's exactly what he's doing. We're going to talk about something after the break called a form and content. By form, I mean literary form. What literary form is a passage? We must understand what, pas what sort of genre what style the text is. Is it a creation narrative? Is it an exorcism? Is it a parable? Is it narrative? 
Those provide tremendously important clues for how we're to read a particular passage. And then the content is the substance underneath that form. Okay, I think this is probably a pretty good spot for a break. What do you think, Father? Thanks. This sounds great, and thank you for this. It's very informative, so really appreciate it getting into this detail. It's very helpful. Um, and like you said, you know, most people just kind of become this kind of, oh, just wash my hands of the thing, and, and Jesus, well, you know, it's just, just Bible talk, a Jesus talk. You know, we'll just let it go, and we can't, we can't do that. We can't do that as Catholics. So this is very, very good. Uh, and uh, for those that are, are in earshot, don't forget that we've got a number of really great talks that are really – First of all, part of this whole series that we've been doing, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Dr. Cutterback's talk on nominalism and uh, Jeffrey Morrow's talk, Dr. Jeffrey Morrow's talk on deconstructing the Bible, understanding the crisis in biblical interpretation. This was a really excellent couple of talks he gave, and those are now on our website. So you're going to want to grab that, Dr. Jeffrey Morrow, and then also Dr. Eric Janislawski's talk, Forming Sacred Scripture, Understanding How the Bible Came to Be is really a, a really w well done. So you're going to want to go back there, Dr. Eric Janislawski. Also, um, I, did a, I did an introduction to the study of sacred scripture. Uh, it's called Revelation, colon, and Introduction to Sacred Scripture, where we go through basic principles of good biblical exegesis. Uh, and I'd also point you to all the other fabulous talks by Dr. Smith. So... If you're enjoying Dr. Dr. Smith's programs here, you want to get on the website, listen to them. But also, I, I would encourage you to go and look at his different books. You got two or three books out, Dr. Dr. Smith. I can't remember. This is my second one, The, ho the House second. of the Lord on the Temple. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Please go and, and grab copies of these. Throw out your television and uh, buy yourself a, a Catholic book. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, two things. One is um, along the lines of my book. I just wanted to tell you about this community we're starting. It's called uh, the. I'm calling it the New Court of the Gentiles, following Pope Benedict, who asked for this New Court of the Gentiles, and this is an effort in that direction. I put the link up here. It's Facebook.com/slash/TheOuterCourt. Uh, it's just a community to talk about scripture, especially from a temple perspective. And then secondly, um, I mentioned these various approaches to inerrancy, and because there's a lot to digest quickly. Andy's been good enough, and I'm going to zoom in here, to put this up on the website. It's a little uh, illustration and diagram. It's two pages, um, and I think it'll help you to digest and really keep straight these various views. It's on inerrancy. And so in addition to the handout that you have, you may want to download a copy of that for yourself. I use it in my graduate courses, but it's very clear and hopefully will help you after this uh, webinar is over. Okay, what I want to do is... Um, Go back to our outline, and on page two, at the bottom, it talks about number seven, form and content are the keys to unlocking inerrancy. Um, and I think it's very important that we get as much clarity on what the church says and give some biblical examples. And that's what I want to spend our time doing. Because I, I have a sense, intuitively, that a lot of you are with me, with the church on this, but you still want to get your teeth in how does this work? How do we really handle those conundrums in Scripture? And I want to show you a few examples. Um, okay, first, let's get the clarity from Dei Verbum. So number seven, form and content. Here's what Dei Verbum says in paragraph 11. Ready? In determining the intention of the sacred authors, by which Dei Verbum means, of course, the human authors, right? 
Attention should be paid, among other things, to what it calls literary genre, right? Or literary forms. This is because truth is presented and expressed differently in historical, prophetic, or poetic texts, for example, or in other styles of speech. The interpreter, and I italicize this, has to look for that meaning which a biblical author intended and expressed in his particular circumstances. Can't emphasize that enough. And it is in his historical and cultural context. By means of such literary genres or forms or styles, as it were, at use in his time. To understand correctly what a biblical writer intended to assert, due attention is needed, Dei Verbum says, to both the customary and char characteristic ways of feeling, speaking, and narrating, in other words, storytelling, which were current in his time and to the social conventions of the period. And remember that the biblical, biblical period is not just the first century, right? That's where it all ends up in the New Testament. We also got to go back to the Old Testament period, which has its own customs, which in some ways are shared with the New Testament, but are also in some ways and are therefore divergent in terms of time of history. Okay, now let me give you a nice quote here of commentary on the passage we just read. I'm actually going to give a shout out to him. as Brad Petrie, and he actually did the, um, the forward to my book. And um, he's, a, he's a very well-respected scholar. And here's what he says. From this important passage in Dei Verbum, we are able to distill several tools for Catholic exegetes, anyone who studies scripture, that is, in, to use in determining the intentions of the human authors of scripture. And he's going to give three. Okay. First, number one, exegesis must pay close attention to literary genres. Right, parable, miracle story, etc., 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 and there are many. This means asking questions like, "What kind of book is this? What is the literary form of the work? Is it poetry, prophecy, and history?" How one answers this question will have a direct effect on the interpretation of the text. And I would even go further than Brandt does here and say, not just what kind of book is this, but what kind of passage is this? Because, as in the case of the Gospels, there are many genre of literature within it, right? Exorcisms are different than parables. Um, narrative and discourse and sermons are different than sayings and so on. So we need to know some of the rules of how those genres work. Okay. Um, second, the exegete must also closely examine the language of the sacred text and its characteristic ways of speaking. Petrie says this means asking questions such as, what is the precise meaning of the words used here? We've had a word in scripture, similar word, and it's used similarly or differently elsewhere. So how is it used here? And good commentaries and other good resources are available to help us with those things. Um, what is their denotation as well as their connotation? Is the human author using a particular idiom, idiom such as hyperbole? Well, we just saw that with the mustard seed passage, right? To smallest of seeds. Jesus is using kind of hyperbole to exaggerate from small to great, right? or double entendre, for example. And then third, and finally, both literary and linguistic analysis must be accompanied by a close study of history and culture. Let's write these down, history and culture. That's a lot of what I do in the book. As I go through and talk about temple sacrifices or the Garden of Eden or the New Testament period, I'm trying to get into the culture and understanding of the writers and as they describe these various genres. 
In sum, these four tools, literature, language, history, and culture, are Vatican II's primary means of discovering the intention of the human authors. Okay, let's bring this back around to our topic, inerrancy. Okay, so, so what? So, okay, I get it, but how does that help us? with regard to inerrancy. Well, I think it helps us because when we come up to those passages where inerrancy seems to come into play because something doesn't seem right or something seems off, right? And we're struck wondering, well, what do we do with this? These are the types of questions that Brand Petrie is suggesting that can help us search for answers. And just because we can't necessarily find an answer does not mean, oh, well, then the scripture, this must be that one error that you know, has escaped everybody, and that's not the case. I cannot tell you that I have resolved every dark passage in Scripture. I wish that I could. But I love the words of, of Augustine, if I can find them here in my quote. Listen to Augustine's humility. This is from a letter to St. Jerome. Augustine writes this, And in these writings, I am, if I am perplexed by anything in Scripture, which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not he hesitate to suppose that, number one, Either the manuscript is faulty, that is the copy, right? Maybe it's a copy error. Or two, the translation has not caught the meaning of what was said. It's a translation issue. Or three, I love this one, or I myself have failed to understand. Okay, so those are really great watchwords from St. Augustine. But what I'd like to do is give you three examples right from uh, what Brand Petrie was just describing because he has three tools there. Let me give you one example quickly from each of those three points he makes, the three tools, just so you can see biblically. The first one would be about literary genre. This is a big one. It's almost the ball game. If we miss this, then we can go in and make all sorts of uh, speculative claims about the scripture. So let's stay with Genesis 1 and 2, which I mentioned earlier. Now, a fundamentalist will say, well, this is God's word, and he's if we believe in God's word, then we believe that what he's conveying to us is that he created the world in six days. Now, this is a big topic. I don't want to kind of open Pandora's box of evolution and all these other things, but I just want to stay with the simple question of how are we supposed to read that text? Uh, the fundamentalist approach would say, well, what do you mean? You read it and the words tell you what God is saying, right? But there is interpretation going on there. What they're not admitting is that their interpretive approach is really literalistic, right? I want to ask those folks who say the world had to be created in six days, because that's what my Bible says. Well, is Jesus made of, uh, of oak? Because he also says, I am the door. They would say, oh, well, that's silly. Well, is it silly? I mean, so these are the kinds of uh, concerns I have. But okay, in Genesis 1 and 2, here's what I would say would help to get a, a good Catholic reading of this. First, um, there are other creation stories outside of Scripture. Now, the scripture is not taking those pagan stories and adopting them. It's not doing that. If anything, it's mocking those stories with the truth of how God created the world. What, what the pagan stories have to offer is vastly different from what Genesis offers in terms of how the world was created. And quickly, I could give you a couple of, of insights on this. When you look at, for example, the Enuma Elish, which is this uh, Mesopotamian creation story, pagan story from the ancient world, um, there are many gods that that create the universe. Not one god, but many god, and they create it by making humanity a slave force to them. Right. So humanity is not in relationship to them. It's a master-slave relationship. Third is these pagan stories are filled with violence. There's all sorts of backstabbing and double dealing. One of the gods is split in two, and that's how you get the waters above and the waters below. Okay. What I would argue is. 
it's not that the Bible is extracting those ideas, but it is in the same genre. It is this kind of symbolic language describing how God created the world. The big difference is that in Genesis, it's the story of how God actually did it. It's not the human conception, right, that's filled with all sorts of violence. And God reveals his tenderness, his love, his beauty, his interest in relationship with humanity. So the difference in the Genesis story is that whereas the pagan stories are offering a, a kind of worldview about the many gods and their violent uh, interests, the Bible's kind of tweaking those things and saying, no, not like this, but like this. When we free ourselves to say, okay, what is the author trying to do and how is he trying to do it? Then we have much more, uh, we're liberated from the human shackles that, that some want to impose on us. And I would actually quote no less than Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who had a great book called In the Beginning. And in this little book of homilies on Genesis, um, he says something very provocative. He says that the images, this is mind-blowing to me, the images of the days of creation in Genesis are only images. They're only images. Now, don't get nervous here. He's not in any way disputing that God created the world, of course. What he's simply saying is that the human authors are presenting this story, this drama, in a language that would be very conversant to the people of their time. And we're stepping into this and have to get some clarity on what the authors are trying to convey. So they're kind of following some of the uh, governing rules of a creation story, often using very colorful and vivid symbolic language. Now, by symbol, I don't mean fake or fiction. I simply mean that beneath the surface of those layers of meaning of days and the tree and so on is a deep cosmological truth, and that is that God created the living universe, created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothing, and brought everything that is into existence, including the crown of creation, man and woman. So Ratzinger says their forms and images. He also says that if you turn to, Pro we're not going to do this, but in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22 and following, is another version of the creation story. Now, you may have never heard of that, but it's actually a creation, mini creation narrative in Proverbs 8, 22 to 30. It's a wisdom speech. That's the genre. So wisdom is speaking. And she says, I was there when God created the world. And essentially, God uses this lady wisdom figure, right? Which is kind of just a way of literary tool of saying that wisdom was intimately connected to the creation of, uh, of, of mankind. But what Ratzinger says in that little book in the beginning is, well, which images are they? Is it the six days or is it lady wisdom that creates the world? And he's not trying to provoke a controversy. He's actually trying to resolve one. He's saying that the images in Proverbs 8 of Lady Wisdom creating the world on behalf of God and God using the six days of creation in Genesis 1 and 2 are simply two different forms, but they both have in common the same substance, the same content. And so this is a quote from Ratzinger. He says, the images in Scripture are free to correct themselves ongoingly. Now, by correcting themselves, he doesn't mean one's mistaken or one's better. It's translated from German. And I think what he's trying to say is that there is a freedom that author, the authors have of using various ways of communicating. So I would argue that that's a much better literary approach, not because it resolves the 6,000-year-old young earth problem, but actually because it's how the biblical authors themselves are giving us clues as to what they're actually saying. And I wish I could say more, more about it here. I actually do say more about it. And I'm not just saying this to you by the book, but I do actually say more about it in, in the house of the Lord. I've got a whole spiel on, on Genesis. Okay, that's the first example. Um, second example, quickly, was the one in which he says, you know, hyperbole. 
and we look, already looked at that one, so we don't need to really spend more time on it. What Petrie's saying is that sometimes there are clues in the text, like in the example that I gave you, right, of the mustard seed is hyperbole. You can look at the um, example in Luke 14, is Jesus teaching against the fourth commandment? That would be an error or a contradiction, right? Or is he using hyperbole and saying, look, I'm not actually saying that you need to literally hate your father and mother, but he takes the examples that would be very close to any person's heart, their mother and their father. And he basically challenges that relationship and says, will you put me above even that relationship? So you don't have to love your father and mother less or hate them. You just need to love me more, more than anyone, more than all of them put together. And when you actually do that, you will actually be loving them in a new way beyond what you can possibly believe. The third example that Petrie gives that's in this paragraph is about history and culture. And gosh, I can think of many examples. But for example, you could take John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman. And how are we to understand that passage more clearly? Well, we would have to know something about the conflict that actually went back to the 700s BC in which the Assyrian army invaded northern Israel and took captive those 10 northern tribes, the lost tribes of Israel. And the people that populated Israel between 700 down through the centuries coming up to the time when Jesus lived, were called Samaritans. And so in order to understand the, the power in what Jesus is doing in inviting this woman into relationship with him is actually deepened when we understand the historical context and the culture of what's going on. So in summary, we have literary genre, understanding forms and images and content and how they're related to one another and how often they can be shaped by the author to say exactly what they want to to an ancient audience. Secondly, we have various literary devices like hyperbole among many others. And then thirdly, we have history and culture itself. All of those things can help us in our search for meaning, even when we're dealing with passages that appear to give us an error. So let's do some more. We looked at the mustard seed one. You ready for a couple more? Now, here's one I really love. This one actually does appear to be one of these clear-cut cases of an error in the Gospels. And it's actually in a very critical passage because it concerns the theology of the Last Supper. So let's take a look at it. If you open up to Mark's Gospel, chapter uh, 14, Mark 14, 12, let me just show you what Mark says about the Passover meal. On the outline, this is, I apologize, I thought I put the page numbers, but it's big, bold, contradictions in the passion narratives. Okay, it's the next page. All right, Mark 14, verse 12. Here's what it says. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, Pesach in Greek, right? The Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, back to Matthew, Matthew chapter 26. Let's first look at all the synoptics. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, again, where will you have us eat the Passover? Prepare for you to eat the Passover. He said, go into the city and so on, right? Okay, and they prepared the Passover, verse 19. And then the same thing in Luke. You can look up that one later. But uh, so we have this clear teaching in the in the Synoptic Gospels, that the meal that Jesus and his apostles are about to eat that we call the Last Supper was a Passover meal. Now, this has huge implications for how we understand Jesus's death and that whole upper room discourse going all the way later into the New Testament um, epistles in terms of the teaching that develops around the Eucharist. Yes? Okay. So it's very, very important. And if it's not a Passover meal and it's some other kind of a meal, well, that's a big problem. 
Okay, well, turn with me to John chapter 18. This is going to rattle your bones, but I'm going to help you through it. Don't worry. John chapter 18, verse 28. This is in the Passion narrative, which is, of course, John chapter 18 and 19. Okay, everybody there? John 18, 28. And this is what we read. Okay, so the arrest of Jesus, right? They, they, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. That's where he had been kept overnight. Some of you who had been to the Holy Land with Father Hezekiah will remember going to the church called St. Peter Galacantu, where the archaeological ruins are of Caiaphas's home, the high priest. Okay. Anyways, they led them from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the praetorium. What's the praetorium? It's the place where he's going to be uh, interrogated by Pilate, right? It's Roman ground. It's, it's a Gentile house, right? So here's what it says. It was early. They themselves did not enter the praetorium so that they might not be defiled, but eat the Passover. Well, wait a minute, Dr. Smith, I'm confused because Matthew, Mark, and also Luke talk about how, about how the meal was a Passover meal that they're about to go and prepare. And that's before Jesus is arrested. Well, here in John 18, the meal's already taken place. It's over, yes? Because he's arrested after the meal. Are we clear on that? Jesus is arrested after the meal, yes? Garden of Gethsemane, they come, torches, Judas, kiss, etc. Okay, so... But John 18 says they, meaning the Jewish soldiers, obviously, did not go into the Roman praetorium so that they might not be unclean or defiled and eat the Passover. Are you seeing now the error in Scripture, quote, unquote? The Synoptic Gospels have it as a Passover meal that's taken place, but it appears as though that Passover meal has not yet taken place, according to John. Well, the biblical scholars of the 20th century had a field day on this one. I mean, much ink has been spilt. Some said the synoptics are the historically accurate tradition. What were they saying? John's just making it up. It's what do they call it? Theological refinement. Okay, yeah, whatever. It's a lie, right? He's just fabricating, basically, right? Now, truth be told, truth be told, I'm, I'm making gesture, but actually the human authors do have liberty to rearrange things. So like the cleansing of the temple that's in Holy Week at the... Uh, at the end of the Synoptic Gospels, is moved up in John chapter 2. The cleansing of the temple is at the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry. So you can say he did it twice, but the Dave Urban would tell us that they have true freedom to rearrange. It's not, it's not a distortion, right? They're true authors, and so they rearrange as they see fit to tell the Jesus story in unique ways. So it is possible that there was two um, cleansings of the temple. It's like, man, there he goes again, right? But it's also very possible that John simply with regard to the cleansing of the temple, just moves it up, okay? And that's not an error or anything of the kind, okay? But back to this question. So is it a Passover meal or not? Raymond Brown went the other way. He said John is the historically reliable one and the synoptics weren't. And that's even more devastating when I mean, they're both crazy. But this one actually is basically taking a stab at the Passover meal, right? And then what Brown would say is, well, you know, synoptic gospels, they, they kind of infer this, but it's not really a Passover meal. What? So it's not a Passover meal. For Raymond Brown. Um, you can read that. It's in his commentary. Volume two, I forget the page number, but it's there. Okay, so here's how St. Thomas actually resolves the problem. Want the answer? Quick answer? No discrepancy. Did you know St. Thomas was a biblical theologian extraordinaire? In fact, I was just saying this on Deal Hudson's show, talking about the house of the Lord. I think he'd be 
perplexed by these titles, systematic theology. What do you teach? I teach systematic theology. I'm a biblical theologian. Well, I call myself that because that's the parlance of today. But he would be would not have that. He was just a theologian, right? And but he did write biblical commentaries. And in Thomas's commentary on John, you know what he actually did? Well, I was going to joke and say he followed Brand Petrie's advice, but you know it's just a joke. But he actually followed what good responsible biblical exegetes do. He did some word study. He looked at the form. He looked at the genre. And here's what he found. By the way, not in Raymond Brown's commentary on John at all. It's not that he disagrees with Thomas. He just, it's like if he knows it, it's not even in there. Okay, what he discovered is that the word Pascha in Greek, Passover, has a range of meaning and at least five different possible meanings in different passages. Here's what Pascha can mean. This is in your outline. Number one, the original event in Exodus. So the word Pascha can refer to Exodus chapter 12, the original event in which it all took place historically. That's one meaning, right? Secondly, it can mean the actual Passover meal that the Jewish people celebrated through the centuries all the way down to Jesus's day, all the way in some modern sense in the you know, as in the Haggadah or the, you know, the, the Sedar meal, it's, it's a remembering the biblical tradition, right? It's different than it. But the third one is the Passover lamb itself. We just saw that when we read Mark, right? They talk about the Passover lamb. The fourth one, this is important, the entire seven-day feast of unleavened bread. I'll come back to that one. And the fifth one, the ongoing liturgies of the feast of Passover uh, beyond the initial meal. Okay. And Thomas concludes by deductive reasoning, you might say, and just good, solid biblical thinking, that it was this fifth meaning, letter E, this fifth meaning of Passover, the ongoing liturgies of the Feast of Passover beyond that initial meal. So not the meal itself, not the lamb, not the original Passover event in Exodus 12, but the seven-day feast. So what happened um, is in Jesus's day, there was something called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was seven days. Then you had the Passover, right, which is on the 14th of Nisan, which precedes those seven days. Well, they got merged, and they were all simply called Passover, just for parlance, what they call it. And it was really defining that whole octave of Jewish liturgy and celebration going on for eight days, beginning with the Passover meal. So what Thomas does that Raymond Brown seems to neglect to do and many others, is simply good due diligence on word study. And Thomas's conclusion is, is very, very clear, very, very satisfying. What he's basically saying is that there's no discrepancy, only an apparent one, between the synoptics and John. So when the synoptics talk about the Passover, they mean the lamb or um, the initial day of the Passover, one or the other. They're very closely related, obviously, as you can see. But what Thomas is looking at here is that the feast actually goes on for seven days. So these Jewish soldiers, to come back to John, do not go into the praetorium where Pilate was um, because they don't want to be unclean so that they can celebrate the whole continuing liturgy. Now, if they were unclean, there was a remedy for that, but it means they would have to celebrate it a month later. It's like Passover part two. It's like all the people, oh, you were sick, you were unclean. Okay, we got a Passover for you. It's the alternate one. Uh, Passover B. This was part of the provision in the law so that Jews could celebrate rather than waiting another whole year. Well, you missed it, right? But that's what's going on there, okay? But again, when you read modern scripture scholars, John Myers, a brilliant scholar from Notre Dame in his Marginal Jew series, just says the synoptics are basically kind of embellish, embellishing. Raymond Brown, John's historical, but the synoptics are not. I mean, 
it's madness, and they don't even refer to Thomas. And if you asked them about, well, St. Thomas actually says this, I kind of think they would sort of just dismiss and say, oh, well, you know, scholastic. Uh, I don't know what they would say, but it's like you don't even deal with it seriously. Okay, as you can see, this really gets me riled up. Now let's go to the resurrection, shall we? In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there are several, quote, errors that are really anomalies and, and things that can be resolved with some logic and these principles that Dave Irvin was talking about. So let's go to maybe my favorite one, and if we have time, we'll do the angel. But I think this is the, the better of the two examples. Okay, so turn with me to John chapter 2, uh, John 20. John 20, verses 1 and 2. John 20, 1 and 2, and here is what it says. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Just pause basics here. Why is not Mary Magdalene and the others there on Saturday morning, the next day? Because it's the Sabbath. That's why Jesus is put into the tomb so quickly. And it's also a great Sabbath, because great called Great Sabbath because it's connected. It's the Sabbath during the Passover. So it's a very solemn Sabbath, you might say. But in any case, even if it was any ordinary Sabbath, they couldn't go. So that's whether they're at the crack of dawn after Sabbath is over on Sunday morning. Okay, you probably know that. Um, while it's still dark, and they saw the stone that had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now, the question is that it appears that Mary Magdalene is at the tomb here alone. And yet, in the Synoptic Gospels, we have these accounts of several women going. And this, this is one of those things that people say, well, the different Gospels are kind of like remembering as best as they can, and memory's not very reliable, and well, that's all baloney, right? But um, they're, just, they're just trying to resolve it using, uh, you know, just human uh, conventional wisdom. But there does appear to be a discrepancy, is there not? I mean, this is important. The witnesses, seems like there's many in the synoptic accounts, the women going, they're listed there, right? Mary, Clopas, and all that. And here it's just Mary Magdalene. Well, actually, read closely. It's right in front of us, the answer. In verse 1, we're told Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, okay? Yet in verse 2, John records it in the plural as we. Is this simply what we call the royal we? Or is there something more to this? Look at what it says. She says to Simon Peter and the, 12, and the other disciple, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So even as we read this character, just slow down. We get more information than at first appears. So verse 1 seems to suggest Mary Magdalene alone, but then the very next verse, she uses the plural. I would argue that not only are the other women there, but probably um, Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, they've got 100 pounds of spices. These Jewish women are like three foot six, okay? I mean, they're not going to be carrying this big bag of potatoes on their shoulders. But So, so I'm making jest. But why is it that... Uh, it's her in the first verse and then the we following it. And I would tell you the reason, I think, is what I call biblical spotlighting. Spotlighting. What I mean by that is that a lot of times the scripture will hone in on one central character, almost to the exclusion of others. If you were imagining John chapter 20 as like a drama on a stage, right? There's the tomb. Everything's quiet. The final act, right? The stage is dark. And all of a sudden, the woman comes out, right? She goes to the tomb, and it's just her. But if you look beyond the shadows of the spotlight, you can see these other figures in the shadows, right? The other two or three figures there. 
They're spotlighting her. Why? Because it's later what Jesus says to her in this one-on-one -on -one personal encounter that's going to bring Mary Magdalene back into that spotlight. And so you could say it's kind of a literary technique if you want, but it's basically how John wants us to train our eyes on the apostle to the apostles, on Mary Magdalene alone. And as I say, even in the next verse, she herself says there were others there. Now, there's another example of this, just to show that it's not an anomaly and to kind of prove the point. Look at me with uh, the next page here. In Luke chapter 24, this time Peter, Luke 24, verse 12. Please turn there. Now, this is also a resurrection narrative. Now, this is with Peter, okay, about Peter. Luke 24, 12. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb. Here it is again, right? Just him. Stooping in, stooping and looking in, he saw the linens closed by themselves, and he went home wondering what had happened. Now, that's it. That's what Luke 24, 12 says. Just him. It's like you get the impression. He goes, he looks in, he doesn't know what's going on, and he goes home. This is what's going on, right? But you, all you have to do is go down 12 more verses, and you get more information that wasn't there in Luke 24, verse 12. Here's what it says in 12 verses later. Moreover, Peter says, some women of our company. In other words, saying it would be some women that were with us, amazed us. So here is another example, yet again, of this technique of spotlighting. And the reason that Luke and John are doing this is not because they don't know who's there, or they're confused or can't remember it, but because they're isolating a particular figure for the theological purpose of saying something more significant about that individual figure. Okay, one more, one more, okay? Now, some will say there's confusion about whether there was an angel or man at the tomb. Turn with me to Mark chap Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. So make a little note in your Bible, an angel of the Lord in Matthew's version here, okay? Rolls the stone, sits on the stone. Well, what about in Mark? Mark 16, 5. Mark 16, 5, turn there. I'll read it for us. And entering the tomb, they saw not an angel of the Lord, but a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were amazed. Luke 24, turn there. This is the last one. Luke 24, verse 4 says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling appearance. So we have an angel of the Lord, a young man, and two men. And again, the skeptics will say, you know, they don't know really what happened. It's all being kind of trying to put back in through memory. And there's all sorts of, you know, speculation here and traditioning and all that stuff, redaction. Okay, but let's take a look at it. First, in Luke and Mark, could we not say that the figure is not human, but only seems to be at first glance? So in other words, there's a kind of a storytelling, right? Remember the guy who is healed by Jesus, and at first he sees trees walking or whatever, like, what are they, Ents from the Lord of the Rings? No, it's just like, he's trying, they're trying to put us into that mode of like, if your vision was blurry and you begin to see. And I think the same literary technique of storytelling is going here. It's like, there's an anticipation for, well, who's there? What's happening, right? And it's very effective storytelling where it appears to be a man. It's almost like the gospel writers are saying, hey, you know, you can imagine seeing this figure and it's like it's a man, but guess what? He's in dazzling white. He's not a man at all. It's an angel. 
And this is corroborated by Luke 22, verse 22. And for the sake of time, this is the one passage I want to ask you to turn to. I'll just read it. It's a quick one. Peter's response indicates that the two men were really angels. Here's what it says. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came back saying they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Well, that same gospel is in Luke 24, which said two men were there. Is Luke correcting himself or is he simply unfolding the story as to give us a sense of that confusion that was going on around the resurrection, right? They didn't know what happened. And then the question of whether it was one angel or two is less problematic than it appears. Was it one angel, one young man, right? Or two is less problematic as in what I've said earlier, you could have one spotlighted or highlighted here for particular reasons. Finally, finally about this passage, concerns about whether the angels were sitting, standing on the stone inside the tomb seem to be incidental to the main narrative. And um, it's implausible that such peripheral details as that, kind of hair splitting as it were, uh, were invented. So we could certainly bring in more questions. What about the sun standing still in Joshua? Is that a miracle? Is this hyperbole? Um, we, we could go on and on with many, many examples of apparent errors in Scripture. But I, what I would say is the outline that I've given you gives you many, many tools, many, many tools, if you will take the time to hold on to it, to pray about this, and to ask the Lord for additional guidance when you face Bible difficulties. There are many good Catholic commentaries. Let me recommend one, the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. There's many volumes now written on the New Testament, very reliable there's hope that someday there will be an Old Testament one as well, but certainly for now we can rely on the New Testament. So well, let me leave you with the words of St. Augustine, and then we'll, set, we'll maybe take a question or two of, of and he's got one or two queued up. Augustine says again, And if the, in these sacred writings, if I'm perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the copy of the manuscript is faulty, the translation has not caught the meaning of what was said, and number third, the third one, number three, that I myself have failed to understand. Ladies and gentlemen of the Institute of Catholic Culture and attendees and guests, Augustine's uh, advice for us is spot on. It's not only we who need to exegete the text properly, we need to let the word of God exegete us to cut open our hearts. Rather than slicing open the scripture with a scalpel, why not let us invite the Holy Spirit to exegete us. So let me say a quick prayer. We'll officially end, but hang around because we'll take a few more questions before we say goodbye. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Our Lord, we thank you for this tremendous gift of the church in our day of the Institute for Catholic Culture. Lord, you know so many here have been so devoted and supportive of this wonderful apostolate and wonderful ministry of evangelization and truth in our uh, very uh, changing times. We ask that you would continue to bless the Institute, Father Hezekiah, Andy, all who work there, the Magdala Apostolate, and so much more. And bless everyone who's here, Lord, tonight, tuning in or maybe watching it later. Bless them in their continuing study of sacred scripture. As we pray the words, you taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And St. Jerome, pray for us. I'm Dr. Stephen Smith. My new book is called The House of the Lord. I certainly urge you to pick it up on Amazon. Hope to see you around Mount St. Mary's if you're ever on the East Coast or in Maryland, stop by and see us. See you at my webpage, 
the outer court, uh, facebook.com slash the outer court. But I'm willing to stick around. If there's a couple of questions I can try to answer, I'll do my best. Andy, I turn it over to you, kind sir. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. I got to tell you, I would have done anything to get this back in undergrad when I was going through religious studies and oh, the stuff that you hear, especially if you're hearing this for the first time, some of the arguments that are coming out, like you're saying, for this sort of restricted sense of inerrancy, they seem trustworthy at first if you're, if you're not kind of familiar with some of these concepts. Right. That's right. That's right. I would just quickly add again that we don't need to be ashamed of our faith or ashamed of the teachings of the church. These are treasures. G.K. Chesterton said that Catholics have access to a million-dollar bank account, and we withdraw pennies. We're hanging our heads. Yeah. We're, 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 we're hanging our heads, and we're ashamed of these beautiful truths. And by the way, we should be sharing these not only with Catholics, but also with people in general, and also with our Protestant brothers and sisters. And I say this with great love, not to because we want to yank them in and convert them. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But my hope, this is my hope these days for Protestants, that they would become more invested in the tradition of Christianity, and they would become more robust in their searching of the scriptures. Just If they would just do that, I'd be so grateful. Thank you. Um, um, I've got a question here from Rachel, and I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it a little bit here. For someone who may be new to the Catholic teaching on scripture, and kind of, it is more subtle and more complicated than what you were describing as sort of a fundamentalist approach. What could you say to somebody who may be thinking the only two options are sort of um, regarding creation, either believe that it's coming from God and that he's powerful enough to create in six days, mm -hmm. or accept sort of this overdrawn, doom and gloom, kind of uh, pointless, slow evolutionary process. What can you say to somebody who thinks that those are the only two options? Well, first, I would, yeah, good, great question. I would only clarify that... I wouldn't profess to know uh, or, or claim that God couldn't do anything. So if he, if we all find out otherwise, at least I, I'm not a young earth person. So if we found out otherwise that God did create it in six little days and the world is somehow 6,000 years old, then I'll be the first to, to bow and repent. Um, and certainly he could do it. It's not a question of whether he could do that. Of course he could do anything. He's the Lord. The one thing he can't do is lie. But what I would say is um, a really good book to start with, which may help more than maybe anything I've said is the book I mentioned Andy earlier, and it's a very gentle, it's not a very, you know, for a beginner, as she describes herself, it's a book I think is very conversational, and that's called In the Beginning. In the Beginning, it's Ignatius Press, it's Cardinal Ratzinger, it's five homilies, so five chapters. He talks about the creationaries, he talks about the six days, he talks about evolution, uh, he talks about all these things, but in a very pastoral way, and I think it'd be a very, very, very effective next, next step. So that would be my, my basic recommendation uh, for that one. We also we have a question coming in from Allison Lowe, which I'm not going to ask the question, Doctor, just because we've covered another talk. I just want to remind people uh, asking about the canon of Scripture. Uh, Doctor, not Doctor Stephen Smith, Doctor Eric Janislawski. We did a uh, I think it was a two hour, three hour. I can't remember um, a program on how the Bible came to be. It's a two hour program. Thank you, David how the Bible came to be, and I think that would probably be the most helpful for you uh, to answer your question. Um, Bob, you had a question. I know since you're a panelist, you couldn't post it in the Q&A. Would you like to ask it here? My question was probably similar to the one that uh, Allison Lowe asked, but I was just going to ask, was the canon of Scripture uh, determined to Trent? The Orthodox believe pretty much what we believe for the most part. So when did, when did they decide? Was it uh, in the 300s sometime? 
So the question, when was the canon decided? A lot of Catholics are confused about this and believe that some will say the Catholic Church invented the canon at the Council of Trent because that's where it was absolutely ratified. But as you know, um, the councils of the church are always responding to issues or they're often at least initiated in some sense because of various questions that arise in the church. For example, Vatican II, right? You look at the opening statements and it's all about wanting to be able to redress how to communicate the church's ancient and consistent teachings in the modern world, right? So the issues at Trent have, not completely, but in many ways have the Protestant Reformation in mind in redressing those issues. But so that's where you get the absolute ratification of of the books of scripture. But I can take you back to um, the very, very early second century where you find in the earliest church fathers, the fourfold gospel being mentioned from the outset, the Pauline corpus, all the way up through um, the second, third century. And then at, even before we get to Nicaea, um, we have these local councils like uh, the Council of Hippo and the Council of Carthage in North Africa that are affirming uh, the canon of scripture of both the Old and New Testament. St. Athanasius uh, is a great saint and defender of, of Orthodox Christology with a small O, right, who said there never was a time when the sun was not S-O-N, right, and so much more. Who gave us the first definitive list in what was called this Easter letter of 367. And I could go on with many more. But the, the point I'm making is that the canon of scripture was not a, a Johnny-come-lately in the, uh, in the 1500s. Um, it's also important to know that the Old Testament canon is still an open question in, at the time of Jesus. Jesus quoted, he says, you know the scriptures, uh, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, right? There's a sense in which there's like, it's still kind of being defined. And I would argue that it takes a unified magisterium to give us a definitive canon because the Old Testament canon takes a long time to kind of crystallize and is probably brought brought to its sort of completion in the 4th, 5th centuries AD. Not a Jamnia, as some have, have said about that. It's not close to Jamnia. That's, that's I think, a an overreach that the Old Testament canon is closed. But there's no question that for all Jews, the Torah is the law, the prophets are inspired scripture, and then the, the writings are, are what's still kind of gelling, is Esther in and all that. But the point is that uh, canonization is a long and in some ways messy process, but thanks be to God that the Holy Spirit was guiding all of this. It's kind of like a miracle of the church that's so really early, the canon is settled. Really, by the by the middle of the second century, the church is already teaching from the living canon. They're not waiting for uh, in, in imprimatur. They're already teaching from it, using the four gospels, using the Pauline epistles, using all of these things, even before the Council of Nicaea, even before, long, long before Trent. So they're not waiting for that. The, the church's liturgy is already teaching us what we believe. And those books that were allowed in were accepted by all the bishops everywhere, going all the way back to the time of the Apostles. There's St. Vincent Loren in the 5th century had this phrase. See if I can get it in Latin. Uh, quad obique, quad semper, quad ab omnibus. Everywhere, always by all. And um, which I just mentioned a moment ago. So all the criteria were there from the very beginning days of the post-apostolic age. It wasn't 1,500 years later. There's a great book called, it's actually by a Protestant, believe it or not, by Lee McDonald. But he's a very honest gentleman. And he says, for example, that the Septuagint was the Bible of Jesus' day, was, the, was the, the Bible that Jesus read. And says so much more that's very helpful about the canon. It's amazing this man didn't become a Catholic, but such as it is. So thank you, Bob, very much. Great question.
I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to jump in there just because I want to point Eileen and the others that are asking questions about the book of Revelation and authorship and so forth. Uh, my brother did a series. It's on our website uh, on the book of Revelation. So feel free to go there. Sebastian Carnazzo has his PhD in New Testament studies. So you can go and do a full study of the book of Revelation there. But uh, Teresa Cotter is asking about your, your new book, Dr. Smith. So we thought we'd conclude by asking you to give us a, just a little snapshot of what it's about why they should go out and find it. Let me start with this real quickly. Thank you for that beautiful picture. I love the picture on the cover. We're grateful that we got it. It's of course, Jesus in the temple. Uh, it's called The Finding of the Savior by the pre-Raphaelite artist, William Holman Hunt. And that really encapsulates what the book is about. It's all about salvation history and God's presence from the original Garden of Eden, God's original cosmological temple, leading all the way through to the tabernacle in the Old Testament wilderness through to the Temple of Solomon, the destruction of the temple, the reconstructed Herod's temple, and then all of that leading forward to the New Testament with the declaration by John that Jesus is the new temple and then following all the way through. So it's basically a, a living thread of the temple moving through the story of, uh, of all of Scripture from Genesis to Revelations, 400 pages and something like 1,200 footnotes. Ratzinger, the Church Fathers, even Tolkien's in there. Um, and we end with an afterword dealing with the churches in the Holy Land. And those who have been, Father, to the Holy Land or those who are thinking of going, I treat some of the temple theology that I think shows up in some of these early shrines, like the Church of the Nativity, like the Holy Sepulchre. And so we'll, we'll leave it at that. It's on Amazon. It's called The House of the Lord. And um, I certainly hope it'd be a blessing to you if you pick it up. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.